0: Before we get to the show, did you know you can get more insights just like the ones you're listening to right here on Seeking Wisdom deliver right to your inbox? Sign up to get my weekly newsletter, it's called The One Thing, at drift.com slash DC. Hey there, this is your host DC. You're about to hear something a little different on Seeking Wisdom, because today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with my co-founder and Drift's CTO, Elias Torres, about what it's like to work in tech as a member of the Latinx community. If you didn't know, Drift is part of the just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latinx founders, and we're on a mission to change that. This episode dives into our backgrounds, our journey to tech, and what it's like to build a company when not many people around you look like you. This episode is the first in a brand new podcast from Elias called The American Dream. Once a month, he'll share inspiring stories from other underrepresented leaders as we work to build our own American dream. If you liked what you hear, be sure to subscribe to Elias's new show by searching for The American Dream. We'll link it up in the show notes too. And as always, let me know what you think by texting me at 1-212-380-1036. And make sure you leave some six-star only ratings for Elias's new podcast, The American Dream. All right, let's go.
1: Elias in D.C., there's a lot that people know about you, but a lot that they don't. And I wanted us to use this opportunity to share a little bit about your background and journey and what it has all meant to you. So let's start with a little bit of background. Elias, I know you presented at the last quarterly meeting, the last quarterly all hands. Can you remind us about how you came to the US?
2: How I came to the US, the the story goes back to uh, my grandmother, I would say in 1975, I was not born yet. And she left Nicaragua as a probably like a 65 year old woman. And she took some bus and she just rode from Central America all the way to the Mexican border And she crossed the river with a coyote. And she told me once I saw her in San Francisco. I first visited San Francisco to go visit my grandmother, that she was a nanny there. But she told me about coyotes, helicopters, and a lot of stress, a lot of danger. Very, very crazy story of how she crossed the border. And then 30-something years later, 35 years later, because she became a citizen, barely speaking English, she was able to get us a green card if it wasn't for her, I could have not come to this country when I was 17 years old in 1993. So I came as an immigrant, had a green card, could come on a plane, didn't have to be worried. I had this card that I felt comfortable. I came before on a trip where I had to have stories prepped so I didn't get kicked out. This time I felt confident. And so that's a separate story. And so I came to this country as an immigrant, but legally, so I could work, I could attend school, I could apply for scholarship. And that's how my journey began, right? Lived in an uh, apartment in Tampa, Florida that was subsidized by the government, food stamps. And that was the beginning. And I even cleaned uh, corporate offices at night, you know? And so I think that's the beginning of the journey, how I came to this country. Very little, not a lot, just my mother and my two other brothers. And began to that point till I'm, I'm here with you guys. So that's kind of like the short version of that story.
1: Thanks, Elias. And DC, your story is a little different. Can you tell us about that?
0: You grew up rich in New York, in Queens. Yeah. <laughs> I was the son of a sharecropper. No, definitely not rich. So I grew up, I was born in the Bronx, New York. So I didn't immigrate here. I was born here. Where I grew up, probably couldn't tell the, the difference. Everyone only spoke Spanish 100% when I grew up. It was the South Bronx, New York in the 1970s, if you don't know what that means, so you can look it up. All the neighboring buildings look like they were in Beirut, right? So they were bombed out and there were no, they were empty. And so anyway, I grew up in the in the South Bronx and then my, I moved to Queens and I moved to a nice neighborhood in Queens, but I only was able to do that because my dad took a job where they gave free housing. And so I moved to Queens and then I, w- I became the only person who looked like me in Queens because my neighborhood was a hundred percent Jewish where I lived. And then 50% Irish and 50% Italian in the other half of the neighborhood. Anyway, when I moved there, I only spoke Spanish because I didn't need to, because that that neighborhood I grew up in in the Bronx was, like I said, 100% Spanish. You would even go to buy Chinese food and all the people from who worked there who from China, they only spoke Spanish. And they spoke so well, if you talked to them on the phone, you would think that they were native, that they were Puerto Rican, which is uh, what most of the people there were. Anyway, so I moved, I learned how to speak English, watching TV and movies, Gilligan's Island, Brady Bunch, uh, Facts of Life, many other things, Bugs Bunny, cartoons, Woody Woodpecker. That's how I learned English. Because uh, when I always say when I grew up, like if there was ESL, I never heard of ESL. ESL didn't exist where I was. We were just thrown in and uh, basically expected to learn. And so that's why we have so many similarities and our lack of being able to tell a proper metaphor or analogy when it comes to Elias and I. <laughs> because we learned English pretty much the same way, and then uh, was raised pretty much by my mom. Uh, my mom was a seamstress, and she worked from home, and so luckily I had her around all the time, and then that was the early beginning of my story, and, you know, I was uh, I was surrogate father to my brother and to my sisters and, and in some ways to my mom, so that's my story.
1: DC, you said that your heritage isn't something that you thought about until the last few years, Why is that? What changed and what does Latinx mean to you now?
0: Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, it started when I met Elias over 10 years ago, right? But I really didn't think about it until this company, I think, until Drift. So a little over five years ago. You know, frankly, to put, now that I can look back, it makes sense on why. I didn't know why I never really placed an emphasis on it. It was just because I had, I was always the other, right? I had never had a choice to think that way. I had never, until I worked with Elias, I always said I'd never met another person who was latin who was in the industry that it was in zero i mean obviously they existed somewhere but i didn't know them even though my first company was in new york city my uh, first two companies were in new york city and then the rest in boston i had never i've gone i'd gone like 10 or 12 years into my career without ever even knowing another person like me remember these are times before instagram and like uh, linkedin and like so i couldn't like go like search and find them or twitter or any of these things and so like so I never really, in some ways, had a choice. And so I think like in some ways, if I would have, I, maybe I should have, but if I would have spent more time thinking of it, I think I might have just been like crippled from not having role models and not being able to see myself doing certain things. So I ignored it and just focused on getting things done and being able to do the things that I did despite everything. And so obviously, I, I was, obviously there was racism all around me every single day, but I had, didn't have the luxury in my mind to think about it. And to let it cripple me. And so it was really when I got into a place where, where I felt more comfortable and where I had more resources, I didn't have to worry and that I had a role model. And then I had lots of role models. And I had a partner like Elias that I could actually spend time really thinking about how do I give back? How do I give other people role models? But, but I definitely didn't have any growing up.
1: I know you both have spoken about systemic racism, and Elias, I know you recently wrote an article about how, even though you're a URP yourself, you had to educate yourself on racism and the experience of Black men and women. As you mentioned, you experienced obstacles related to race and discrimination. Can you give us some examples, and how did you deal with that? The
2: thing I would say is that, remember, like I grew up in Nicaragua, where I show you a picture of Communist revolutions, people with AK-47s. It's just like you get beat up on the street. There's no, it's lawless, right? It's like, I, I did not grow up with the, we're spoiled here that we complain about. I don't know what we complain. I, I didn't have power all the time. We have here like, oh my God, I don't have power. And Jimmy K goes to the South End. I'm not trying to pick on Jimmy, but it's like, you know, he goes to the other headquarter. I didn't have power like every day. It was like, I didn't have water or power. You know the the electricity would just kick in, and they were like, "Oh, wait, let's watch TV or let's do something with electricity." And so, when you grow up like that, you come to this country, and you you have a different level of resilience. And whatever comes, I don't complain, right? It's like somebody mistreated me, give me a microaggression in the workplace, just rolls off. I don't. That's why I say to people, I don't easily get offended, right? Contrary to my reaction and aggressiveness and intensity. And so, that was the the big awakening for me. Like I've gone all my life, 40 years in this country, and I never care when anybody discriminated against me. It just, I don't give a shit, right? It's like, whatever they do, it's not going to stop me. My gain was, I came to this country, I was less. And whatever I inch forward on that, that was my gain, right? So I never thought about it. But it, it is until now that I realize how bad it is, and how unfair it is, and how no matter how hard we will work, people of color, we can't overcome this because there's a system blocking it, right? And there's no change. And so it's that is the realization I got this year, right? Before, as a person individually, I didn't care. I was going to overcome it myself, right? But now it's like, we got to break the system, right? And this is not just happened to Latin Americans, but it's it's even worse for African Americans, right? And so that was what I learned this year. And it's just been a... A journey of educating myself and understanding the journey that we're in as a country. But I think it's coming to light and, and it's exciting, right? That, that at least more, more and more people are aware, more people want to help bring change into this. Right?
1: So I'll ask both of you this question. Elias, this question came up in a video shoot with you the other day, but I'd like to pose the question to both of you What is one of the most significant challenges you've faced in your life, and how did you overcome? those challenges. DC. maybe we'll start with you. I
0: don't know, I have so many. I don't know, <laughs> not growing up with a father. I don't know, that's a pretty big one. But they're endless, like they I could go on forever. But that's probably the one that's probably impacted me the most.
2: How did you yeah, overcome I, it? I, that's exactly the same way I feel about it. I, I was, I'm,
0: just, I'm still
2: overcoming it. i was still overcoming it. I said I said uh, I was re- being recorded for this video to inspire Latin youth to take risks, right? And that's what I suggested at the end. But, they were like, I started talking about, it. I had an alcoholic stepfather, right? it was like, it was fucking chaos at home. We had no money and my house burned down. You know, I remember running out in my underwear one day and like the whole house burned out and everybody in the neighborhood, you know? I'm like, I don't know how- old, I That's a visual. So there's a the visual, right? It's crazy stuff, right? I mean, it's like coming here illegally, coming here illegally food stamps, applying for college, when your family tells you your best job you could get is to work for the post office because they have a great pension
0: plans, right? It's a, like, it's like- it Mine was the garbage department, New York City they, Department of Sanitation. I
2: live, exactly. I live in Boston and I'm like, I can't afford to buy a house in this place. It's so expensive. I'm just shipping to Florida. I, I was talking to Alejandro and I'm like, I'm just going to, let's just go to Florida. Everybody there has a nice house. Let's just give up on this. And then I'm going to quit IBM and I'm going to go work with David and there's only like 10 people. (laughs) And then 2008 crashes. I don't know. It's like when a financial advisor told me he was from college and he's like trying to get me to work with him and he goes through my budget and he says, you have no money. You're like spend more than you make. Uh, And he hung up on me. He called me later on and he was like, hey, I saw something in the news. We should talk. And I'm like, fuck you. That's kind of like, it's just like every single thing is a hardship. I don't know. Like it doesn't get any better. Working and running drift is hard. It's hard. It's hard. Everything is hard. But I am thankful that I have had the health and the energy and the team and the support to um, to take on these hardships. And I've had people that have helped me. I can't complain. It hasn't been all just getting kicked and you know on the ground. But it's been a lot of people that have made a huge difference in my life.
1: You both have children. How do you talk to your children about their heritage, your heritage?
0: I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, I think we talk about it all the time. But the reason I say that is that they grew up in an entirely different context. Like you hear a little bit, a little tiny glimpse into Elias's context. and my context, it's just totally different. Like it's a totally different time and place. My, my daughter is the boss of all bosses. She is more driven. You know, I'm a, I always say to, next to my daughter, who's 15, now I'm like a lazy sloth. I'm just like the laziest, like most, you know, like do nothing sloth. And Elias has a similar daughter. They're like way, way, way ahead of any of our thinking. I didn't have the, I didn't have the luxury of my daughter's thinking on the context until probably like 10 years ago at best, you know, and yeah. I'm being generous for myself. And so like we talk about it all the time, but they're in a much more advanced state than I ever was.
1: Elias,
2: <laughs> I lose my shit with my kids all the time. <laughs> because it's like, there's just no context. It's just impossible to pass down the context of my experiences to them. My son, somehow, uh, my wife is partly included in this, ends up buying this very expensive hat, right? It's a big brand. I wouldn't even go into the specifics of prices. I just totally lost my shit. I was like, come, come over here. Let's, let's talk about this hat and what is it gonna take? like you have no sense whatsoever of what things cost. And we spend like a whole afternoon doing math and talking about jobs and, and salary and expenses. And like, at what point in his life was he gonna go and spend this much money on a hat, right? It's like, just like, where is the extra income? How do you even add this thing up, right? And so those are the kinds of lessons that I, I try to give them, right? It's like, you can't get a phone unless you build an app. You can't do this. You gotta do the dishes every night. My daughter yesterday, the other day, we woke up and the worst thing to wake up for my wife especially is like when the kitchen is just a total disaster, right? And and that's their job. They three of them have to clean the entire kitchen every night. You gotta do some work. And they say my daughter's like, Oh, I tried it, I was it was one AM and Noah was sleeping. And I'm like, No excuses, practice extreme ownership. I just don't care. Like you get up, wake him up, wake me up. This is your job. It doesn't matter that you're not getting it done. So just like you guys get it from me here, uh, my kids get it, right? And it's like I'm just fighting every day so they go into this world and have their rugged, their hard, they have, they're have they not spoiled, they're not entitled, even though they are extremely spoiled and entitled, right? And so we're just trying to expose them to as much as we can because I just, I just want them to be – to be humble, to be hardworking, to have great ethics and great discipline. That's what, as parents, we want. So uh, I give them a lot of shit.
1: One final question from from me. This one's for D.C. So at Drift, we focus on supporting STEM-related nonprofits, Hack Diversity, Wallbreakers, Build, and others. Our board is very supportive of those organizations as well. Why the focus on STEM and future generations? Why why Mm. is that, D.C.?
0: It's a super important one for me at at Drift, but also personally, because because I think when you want to invert the problem and try to figure out, like, how do we solve this systemic problem that we have? To me, the real answer is that we have to go not to the current generation, but we have to go to the future generations and start working there. So we all complain about diversity and uh, within, specifically within STEM, but just in general as well. We don't go back to, like, how do we solve this problem? We want to... We all want an init- initiative, we want a hashtag, we want a lovely little avatar lo- uh, icon that we can put on. And those things are important to speak up, but those things are not gonna affect the system that we're in. So I think, you know, for us, we say like, okay, how do we get more people in STEM? It's not by talking to the same kids who are in college already who are already elected to not be in STEM or to be in STEM, but it is to like, focus on high school, middle school, where at the youngest that we can and try to change those people and try to get more of those people to come into STEM and for us to be closer to those new the next generation uh, folks. And the non-sexy answer is that it's going to be a multi-generational shift. And for, for some of us who have lived uh, long enough, we've seen massive changes, which is very easy to discount, right? Because they're never good enough and it's never fast enough. But the world is completely unrecognizable to me from when I was coming up to where it is now. And it will be for You know our kids and their kids and it will continue. It's a long line of progression, which is kind of like my talk today. There's going to be lots of dips. We're as a country in a dip right now and uh, it will be painful. And then we'll hit this next stair step of growth and then we'll have another dip and it'll be painful again. History has taught us this over and over again. It's it's amazing that most of us want to ignore those uh, lessons of history and think that it's going to be a magical new way to do these things, but it's long-term investment over a long period of time, and then you'll see compounded returns over time, and there's never been any other way. Let me know what you thought of this episode by texting me at one 380 1036 Again, one 380 1036 Now, if you're looking for more leadership insights, sign up for my weekly newsletter, The One Thing, at drift.com slash dc. Every week, I'll share a habit, tool, or mental model that's helping me reach my goals. Hope to see you there. Text me. Hit me up.